Weight loss is an estimated $72 billion industry. But are we ever really taught the right way to lose weight? Or do these industries actually benefit by us not really knowing how to do it in a realistic, healthy, sustainable way? What's up, everyone? It's Danae Johnson, the Hellwell Podcast. And today we are talking to naturopathic doctor Jessica Eastman. So today we're talking to Jessica about the science of weight loss, okay? About how weight loss is so much more than just calories in and calories out. So if you're somebody who's tried to lose weight, you've struggled in the past, This is really going to be a beneficial conversation for you to tune into today, my friend. Of course, you can't go into talking about weight loss without talking about the keto diet, right? Of course, yes, we talk about the keto diet today, intermittent fasting, and she actually offers a pretty fantastic little checklist to see if keto and and or intermittent fasting are right for you. We talk about how the birth control pill can affect your weight, and we also talk about the most common issues that she sees her clients struggling with that get in the way of their weight loss. Let's jump right in. What do you feel are some of the biggest struggles you see with your clients when it comes to losing weight? So the biggest challenge that I see in my patients, but also in everybody across the board, uh, people who are advertising weight loss programs, people who are trying to lose weight, is that they are focusing on the weight loss part of the plan and they're not focusing on the health part of the plan. And what I mean by that is if you and your body are not optimally healthy, for example, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not eating enough or you're not eating properly or you're super, super stressed and you're not managing it all that well, your body's not going to let you lose weight very easily because of the ways that your, your hormones and your nervous system and everything are going to be out of balance. And so I think the main challenge that I see is people who have tried to lose weight over and over or people who are following these weight loss plans but are not setting themselves up to succeed by making sure they've got the foundation of health that you need to build a weight loss plan on top of. And so then they fail or the weight loss plan works, but then they gain all the weight back pretty quickly and they feel like it's not working or like they're not doing something right. And in actuality, they're just, they're probably doing exactly what they need to do. They just needed to do something else first. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it, it can become tricky because generally people struggle a little bit on their own to try and lose weight before they seek out the assistance of somebody like myself or a personal trainer or somebody. And so by the time they bring themselves into my office to say, can you please help me to lose weight? They wanted to lose weight three months ago or three years ago. And so to have me say, yep, we can totally do that. But first we need to get you sleeping a little bit better can be at at least in the beginning, a little bit discouraging because they're feeling like they want to lose weight yesterday. Right. Yeah. So uh, the deal though, is that, so it's just about, we just have a conversation about that. And, and the deal that I always make with them is if we prioritize building your health, establishing a little bit more solid foundations in your health first, the weight loss part of this weight loss plan is going to go way smoother and way easier. And it's going to be more sustainable to hold those improvements, which generally people are on board for. Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this right off the top because I think it's so frustrating for people when the media and marketing is constantly just hammering, you know, exercise and less calories. So people think Mm -hmm. that that's solely what they need to focus on when, like you said, in reality, there's so much more to it. Like your your health needs to be the number one thing that you're kind of looking at first, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so let's dig into a couple of those different things then that you were talking about. Maybe first let's start with sleep and why that's such a huge, hugely important part of weight loss. Yep. So sleep is the central component of health in all realms. So regardless of what this podcast topic was, we would probably end up talking about sleep to some (laughs) degree because if your sleep Uh, If you're not getting good quality sleep and if you're not getting adequate sleep and you're sleeping not at the right times of day, our capacity to heal another part of your body or make changes in another part of your body is either reduced or blocked entirely. If you want the magic pill to live longer, be healthier, lose weight, it's sleep. Mm -hmm. And it's for for a thousand reasons. The most obvious one is that when you are sleep deprived, and lots of people are living sleep deprived even though they don't realize it, that's a stressor for your body. So forcing your body to go through your workday and live your life without enough energy, without enough sleep, your body has no choice but to put itself into a higher stress state in order to handle that. And stress is a big obstacle to weight loss. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, then cortisol is going up. And when our cortisol goes up, it's pretty <laughs> impossible to lose weight, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other big thing is when we are getting good quality sleep, we one of the phases of sleep, which is called deep sleep, um, is the time when the majority of a hormone called growth hormone is secreted in adults. Mm-hmm. So in kids, that hormone, as the name suggests, helps facilitate growth. Um, but because as a, in adulthood, we don't need to do as much growing as we do in kids, instead of that, you know, pulsatile secretion that gets secreted throughout the day in children, we get the bulk of our growth hormone secreted during the deep sleep phases of our sleep. And that hormone specifically works to support our cells in burning fat as fuel in preserving our muscle mass and actually promoting uh, the healing and repair of new of, of tissues and the building of new muscle if we've asked our body to do that. Mm-hmm. So without getting adequate growth hormone, therefore, or vis-a-vis not getting enough sleep, um, you could be doing the best weight loss plan and exercising and doing all the right things, but your body isn't given enough time to like heal from all of that and actually put translate the work that you're doing into cellular and metabolic change. Right. Uh, and so you won't see the results you're looking for. Okay. So what does an ideal night of sleep look like for people? Yeah. Um, so the average human needs between a six and a half, seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. The, some of the research is definitely is saying even closer to seven and a half to nine hours of sleep a night. And for those of you, for those of your listeners that are like, well, I get six hours of sleep and I feel totally fine, um, it's possible that you're feeling totally fine because caffeine is helping you totally feel fine. <laughs> right. um, or it's not, oh, you're, you're not noticing short-term the impacts of low-level sleep deprivation, but you will notice it long-term. What about those people, like I have a friend who was even just saying to me last week, I find when I get less hours of sleep, like when I get six hours of sleep, that I have more energy in the morning and throughout the day. Is that an adrenaline thing or what's going on there? Yeah, it's probably a cortisol thing. Mm-hmm. There's a, it's hard for me to answer specific like person, individual questions, because right. there'd be so many questions I'd want to ask her specifically. But what I generally say is aim for seven to nine hours a night. If you can optimally function with no health repercussions, with no mental health repercussions, with no energy repercussions, and without a reliance on either stimulants to keep you going or 
what I call calmer downers, which is either like sleepy time tea or alcohol or weed to help you fall asleep, then I'm going to be more apt to say, okay, maybe you are a person who can operate pretty well on six and a half hours of sleep. Right. Um, but I have actually yet to meet a person who's said that and in the further discussion with them hasn't had some way in which their body isn't really functioning optimally. Right. Yeah. I'm a nine hour kind of girl. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it can, ch- and it changes throughout your life, right? If you're in a time of particularly high intensity healing, whether you're doing like physical healing or mental, emotional healing, you're going to need more sleep mm. and, or high stress, right? If you're in a, in a period of time where things are pretty easy going, you can probably um, operate pretty well on a period of lower or on an, on a lower amount of sleep. But in general, uh, six, six hours is, is not enough. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So sleep to minimize cortisol, to make sure we're getting the growth hormone. Um, what other things, like maybe let's talk a little bit about hormones and how that affects our weight loss. Yeah. So the, the first hormone that we always talk about, which we've touched on briefly already in terms of weight loss is cortisol. So cortisol is our long-term stress hormone, but in the body's uh, world, long-term stress is like anything longer than about 10 minutes. <laughs> maybe even less than that, Which depending on the moment. pretty much all have nowadays. Right, exactly, yeah. And so the key here to understand this system and why it's not really working in our favor in terms of weight loss is to consider that this system evolved thousands and thousands of years ago when our primary stressors were either a predator, which would be short-term, you know, you run away from the tiger, then it's gone, or famine or illness, right? So food scarcity or sickness. And in both of those cases, the action of cortisol would both help you to sustain yourself during that period of, of challenge and stress, but you would also be resting a lot, right? If you were a member of a hunter-gatherer tribe and you were, you were sick or your, food, your tribe didn't have enough food, you certainly wouldn't be working eight hours a day and then going out for dinner with your friends and then having a couple drinks and then, you know, do it and hitting the bar class in the morning on your way to work. So the system now... The life that we live in now definitely promotes this long-term secretion of cortisol. And being busy doesn't inherently mean you have high cortisol. A lot of it has to do with our our mindset around what we're doing and our stress coping mechanisms, our self-care techniques, our diet, our sleep, our lifestyle. But if you are living in a state where you've got high cortisol, your body's not going to be interested in letting fat go because when you were a hunter-gatherer, keeping extra nutrients available as a backup source of fuel, aka keeping fat on your body, was protective, protective against famine, protective against long-term illness, right? When you were too tired or were too sick to go out and forage for food. So if you are in an elevated cortisol state, especially for the majority of the day or the whole of the day for multiple days or weeks or months or years in a row, your body's just not going to be in a state where it wants to let you lose weight, even if you're doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. The term that we use to describe cortisol in terms of its hormone category is we call it an anabolic hormone, which means that it encourages the body to build things. So when cortisol is high and you eat, cortisol drives your body to turn that fuel you just consumed into fat as a storage. Right. The other hormone that plays a big role in messing up our ability to lose weight is insulin. Insulin is also an anabolic hormone. So in the same way, it's asking our body to to store fuel, to rebuild 
protein and to rebuild our glycogen stores, which is our glucose storage form as well. But your body can't be breaking things down if it's also in that moment under the control of a hormone that's asking it to build things. Those are two contradictory requests. Right. So either being stressed all the time or doing things that are going to spike, keep your insulin levels high, which is essentially like snacking all day or eating to eating meals or snacks that are too high in sugar or carbohydrates and not high enough in proteins and fats. Both of those things are going to keep you in this anabolic state all day and prevent you from switching into the weight loss state, which would we, which is called a catabolic state where your body's then breaking down fat so that it can use it for fuel. So basically if somebody's eating sugar throughout the day, their blood sugars are increasing and that's releasing insulin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And when insulin is high, it's pretty much impossible once again for us to lose weight. Right. Yeah. And so it's what we want. We want insulin to be following this gentle rise and fall wave pattern throughout the day based on our meals. But the ideal scenario is that you eat three meals a day. And so insulin rises when you're eating and for a little bit after, then it falls for the period of time between your meals, your insulin is low, your body can shift into a catabolic state, and then it can come back up when you eat your next meal. And then if you've also timed your meals appropriately, you can spend a portion of your sleeping hours in a catabolic state as well, because you're fasting while you're sleeping. So do you feel like people should be timing, like actually on the clock timing when they eat or versus like something like intuitive eating? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both of those, I think. So intuitive eating is certainly the like ideal goal, but it's a really difficult thing for most people to do. Intuitive eating relies on this, this skill or this sense, which is called interoception, which is the ability to feel what's happening inside your body and, and respond to it accordingly. And lots of people don't have that skill particularly well honed, mm-hmm. either because They were never taught how to listen to what their body is asking for or because they've had to ignore what their body is asking for because of the stressful or busy life they have or things like trauma or, you know, too much caffeine or substances can also block your ability to feel what your body is asking for. So for sure, if you have the ability to sense like, oh, yeah, I'm hungry, I should eat and I should stop eating now because I am satiated, then yeah, I want to I want to foster that and I want to develop that in my in my patients. But I also like to give them a general structure to fit their meals within so that they don't have to rely exclusively on that internal interoception sense, which might not be fully developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point for anybody out there who doesn't know what intuitive eating is. I think you pretty much just described it there, Jessica. But yeah, basically listening to your body when your body feels hungry, what it's asking for. And I know even for my own personal experience growing up and having, you know, not the greatest relationship with food as a kid. That's exactly what my then nutritionist did for me was to create a plan like you do for your patients that helped give me an outline of knowing, okay, when and what I should be eating. And then as the years have gone on, I've gotten a lot more comfortable and more attuned to my body. And now I feel like my body does tell me, like, I don't need to keep an eye on the clock anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's definitely something that's developed over a lot of years. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, exactly how it should go. It's, it's a skill just like anything else. And so the classic, like the obvious thing that interrupts or the obvious example that illuminates why interoception is not an easy thing is because it gets confused really easily by things like cravings. 
which is a common thing that people experience when they are bored or tired or lonely or sad or frustrated or stressed. Uh, And because along the way, we've pretty much all learned that sugar makes us feel good. It's really common for people to have sugar cravings. Mm. Um, But it's really hard for people at the beginning of their interoception training, quote unquote, to discern between, well, my body seems to be asking me for sugar, so shouldn't I give it sugar? Right. And And how do you differentiate between, well, what is it actually asking for and what is, you know, a maladaptive food relationship pattern? Yeah. My experience with that has been like... Go on a cleanse for two weeks. Your taste buds will totally readjust and you won't be craving the junk food anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I usually do it. I try to facilitate it with my patients in an even slightly more gentle way than that because not everybody's even up for a cleanse. Right. Um, But yeah, generally, if we if we help you to feel what your body feels like when you're eating at the right times and you're eating the right foods, then eventually you're going to have a day where you kind of, you know, fall off the bandwagon, so to speak, and you don't follow the plan that we've made for you. But hopefully on those days, you'll start to identify, oh, my energy isn't as good today or my brain's not quite as clear today or I feel this feeling uh, that's different than I have been feeling for the last two weeks when I've been eating protein and fats regularly and all of that stuff. So, right. Yeah. Okay. One other thing I heard you mention was like the snacking. And I know this Mm -hmm. is like a thing that I had drilled in my head as, as a young girl, like you've got to snack throughout the day to maintain your blood sugar levels. So your insulin doesn't spike and you don't gain (laughs) weight, but like you're feeling totally opposite on this. Yeah, I am. And this is a tricky one because there's a lot of um, opposing viewpoints out there. And a lot of people saying contrasting things, including in in our world, in the dietitian and the nutritionist world. So, um, but the the way that I make my recommendations is based on my pretty thorough understanding of the physiology of of what's happening when we are in both a fasting and a fed state. Uh, and so, my recommendations is, are for sure that we should, as best as possible, eat you know three or maybe four meals a day if you are doing a lot of exercise, um, spaced out and avoid recurrent snacking throughout the day for the reasons that we said a moment ago, which is giving your body a chance to have the benefits of an elevated level of insulin where you get to build more muscle and repair your tissues, and then also the benefits of the low insulin periods where you can regulate your other metabolic processes and burn fat as fuel. Mm. The catch here is that if you are balancing your meals appropriately and you're eating the right things in your meals, then you don't have to worry about your blood sugar falling in between your meals. Because I agree with that, uh, you know, the, the instructions that you were given as a younger person, which is you don't want to let your blood sugar drop during the day. That's true. A precipitous drop in your blood sugar is what people are feeling when they feel hangry, right? That like irritable, (laughs) nauseated, dizzy, can't make a decision, they're grumpy, they don't know what they want to eat, but they're really hungry. And not only does that prompt us to make less healthy food choices, but it also is stressful for our body. And so that also comes alongside a spike of cortisol, which increases our stress, which messes up all the other stuff that we've already talked about. So you do want to avoid that drop in blood sugar, but the way that you do that is not by eating throughout the day consistently, but by making sure you've got adequate fats, healthy fats, and adequate protein in each of your meals, because both of those things get processed by your body more slowly than carbohydrates, and they allow this gentle wave-like rise and fall of both your blood glucose and your insulin levels, 
they also have this blunting action if you do end up eating sugar or carbohydrates. And so the point is not that carbohydrates are bad because they're not the devil at all, but if you are eating them on their own, because they get processed so quickly, they are going to give you this spike and then you're going to get that crash. Okay, so we've talked about insulin, other hormones that we want to talk about, maybe like estrogen. Yeah, so the as soon as we get into the reproductive hormones, things get a lot more complicated. I think the one the one thing I'll say regarding hormones before we jump into estrogen is the thyroid hormones because mm-hmm. those are definitely involved in metabolism. So when we aren't making enough thyroid hormones, we can definitely have like a general slowing down of our metabolic systems, which can be a reason why people are having trouble losing weight. So that one's a relatively easy one to fix and it's a relatively easy one to check. And so in any of my patients who have been struggling to lose weight for a long time, and they're also feeling some symptoms that might put them into a potential thyroid category, thyroid issue category, like they're pretty sleepy, they're maybe a little constipated, they're kind of, their appetite is low, they've maybe got some brain fog, I'm going to test their thyroid to make sure their thyroid hormones are where we want them to be. Mm-hmm. And we should also just mention that like the Western medicine thyroid testing is different than a naturopathic testing. So it's, it's the same test, actually. But the main difference is that I'm just looking for your thyroid hormones to be in a narrower range. So the, the Western medicine, uh, the allopathic system is the, the range that they're using is where should your hormones be on average so that you are not experiencing significant um, pathological dysfunction of your thyroid gland? And I agree with those ranges. They're, the same, they're true. Um, but what we tend to see is that people, there's a big difference between people not being pathologically sick uh, and people feeling optimal. Right. And so I'm just, I, I have a slightly narrower range that I would ideally like your thyroid hormones to be within. So that's what I'm looking at when I am looking at those lab results. So if somebody were to go to an allopathic doctor, like a general practitioner, oftentimes mm-hmm. they'll say your your numbers are fine. Whereas if they were to come to you, that might not be the case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really going to be dependent on the person, but it would be an easy thing for me to take the labs that their other doctor ordered and give them a look and see, okay, well, maybe actually there's maybe some improvement here. Now, with that being said, um, if their lab if their lab values are maybe a little bit outside of my normal range, but within the healthy range, and they don't have any of the thyroid symptoms, the hypothyroidism symptoms, then I'm not super worried about it because we're never we're not supposed to be, and we are not focusing on treating the lab value. We're treating the person that's in front of us, and so mm-hmm. we're always comparing. What do these lab results mean in the context of the person with the symptoms? Right. Okay. Yeah. Thyroid. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Estrogen is a lot more complicated Mm -hmm. because it works and and all of the hormones do this, but the reproductive hormones do this, especially uh, in a complicated way. Um, They work together with the other hormones. And so it's, it's not sufficient for us to just look at estrogen levels on their own or just talk about estrogen on their own because estrogen works by being in balance with progesterone and cortisol and testosterone and a few other hormones. Right. We definitely see challenges. So the other the other thing to consider is that there's an optimal level of estrogen in relation to progesterone and there is definitely too high and too low, right? So there's this like sweet spot window. Mm-hmm. 
The tricky part about that is that we don't have a, a lot of data because we haven't been paying attention to women's health in research and in medicine for that long. Um, and so we don't have a ton of data about, like, what is an ideal range in terms of estrogen because it's so different from person to person. Mm-hmm. But what we do want to pay attention to for sure is that your estrogen, your progesterone are balanced with respect to each other. And a common thing that happens in lots of people is that they're producing enough estrogen or maybe even too much estrogen, but they're not producing enough progesterone. So progesterone is produced by a structure in your ovaries after you ovulate, which means if you're not ovulating, then you're not producing very much progesterone at all. And so anything that suppresses ovulation, which would include hormonal birth control pills, would put you in this state where your progesterone is a little bit too low or a lot too low, but your estrogen is still up there. And so that disrupts the balance of those two hormones. And then you've got a lot of things that can go wrong as a result of estrogen not having its balance partner. We also see stress really negatively impacting progesterone levels, which is another common thing that women are experiencing because the cortisol hormone is very closely linked to the production of progesterone. Actually, all of the hormones are built from the same, all of those hormones, um, cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone are all built from the same precursor molecule, which is cholesterol. And so if your body's making too much cortisol, then it will have to actually pull from its progesterone stores to make that cortisol. And so your progesterone will be continuing to drop if you are in periods of long-term stress. And all of this affects weight in the end. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it makes it more challenging in a bunch of different ways for us to be able to lose weight, right? Estrogen also connects back in to weight loss in a bunch of different ways. Testosterone connects into weight loss. They are all linked in with insulin as well. So making sure you have adequate progesterone and making sure you're eliminating estrogen from your body properly are definitely two keys you want to make sure you're working toward if your goal is weight loss. Okay. So what do you suggest, Jessica? What are some of the top recommendations you give to your clients to help with like hormone balance in the body? Yep. Um, So the first thing we want to do if we're looking to balance hormones is make sure. So what I call, and I think you know this today, um, what I call the four foundations of health. Yeah. So these are what I view as the four what you know they're the figurative four corners of the foundation of your health house so to speak and so essentially they're the four things that all humans need to be fundamentally healthy and until we want uh, those need to be addressed if we want to do anything more complicated on top of them like balance hormones and so the four foundations of health are healthy adequate sleep healthy adequate nutrients healthy adequate movement or exercise and healthy reasonable stress levels and coping skills and so If a person comes to me, we've done no work together so far, they want to balance their hormones, we have to start there. Once those things are relatively solid or at least improved, the next place we go to balance hormones is actually the gut. Mm. So both the intestinal tract and our digestive capacity and also the liver, which is kind of all in the digestive system category. The... Liver is the organ that's primarily responsible for metabolizing and breaking down our hormones to make sure they are being eliminated properly 
which is extra important for estrogen because that's one we often end up with too much of. And so we want to make sure our livers are working properly and optimally. But the catch is that once the liver chops estrogen up into the, into the version that is able, that we're easy to eliminate, the estrogen metabolites get sent into the intestinal tract and their intention is to be eliminated in the feces. Mm-hmm. But if your intestines aren't working properly, aka if you're not, if they're not moving quick enough, or they're not moving slow enough, or you don't have the right gut flora, then all of those things won't be. Pro- all of those metabolites may not be processed properly, and you might not actually end up eliminating them in the stool. One of the common things that we see is the estrogen metabolites are processed appropriately by the liver, but then. They move into a digestive system that's constipated, and because the stool is sitting in the intestines for too long, the estrogen can actually just get absorbed back into the body and then perpetuate this cycle of too much estrogen. Right. So if you're not pooping, your estrogen's staying in your body. Yeah, exactly. And so once we've solidified the four foundations, if you're exercising, if you're sleeping well, if you're feeling relatively you know, capable of managing your stress and you're eating properly and your digestive system is working well, I think at that point, probably a lot of the issues you might have been feeling from the hormone imbalance may have corrected themselves already. Mm -hmm. And if not, that's when we can implement a few specific nutrient-based supplements or herbal-based supplements to help drive the hormone balance in the right direction. Mm, Yeah, that's such an interesting one. I talk to so many women nowadays who are dealing with constipation. Mm -hmm. But I guess, like you said, you have to make sure those four foundations are in check first before you can really start talking about, like, is there a gut issue there? Do they have SIBO? Is there, you know, some sort of situation like that going on? Yeah. The, The classic reasons that I see for people being constipated are they're not sleeping enough, they aren't drinking enough water, or they're eating while they're stressed, right? They're eating on the run, they're eating in a meeting, they're eating while also making dinner for their family. And all of those things are not going to set your digestive system up to work properly. So lots of people are scared to come and see me for digestive support because they're worried that I'm going to tell them that they have to stop eating all their favorite things (laughs) or that they're going to have something bigger like SIBO that we have to like do this elaborate treatment plan. And that does happen sometimes, but a lot of the time it's a much simpler fix. Well, that's reassuring. (laughs) What about how gut bacteria affects weight loss? Yeah, so that's a that's definitely a more esoteric concept. Um, So the gut bacteria. So you're talking about the gut, the bacteria, the gut flora that lives primarily in our large intestine. We know that they play a significant role in our immune system. And we also know that they produce a a large chunk, if not the majority of some of our neurotransmitters. One of the neurotransmitters that they produce in large majority, I think 80% um, of our serotonin is Mm. produced actually by the flora in our gut. And we also know that serotonin plays a significant role in regulating our appetite and our desires for specific foods. When we don't have enough serotonin, it generally correlates to carbohydrate cravings. And so this is a common thing where people aren't feeling super great about maybe their, where they're at in their lives or their days, and by the end of the day, they're tired and they're struggling to 
handle those subpar feelings. And then they're just kind of overwhelmed by sugar cravings in the evening after dinner. And so that's one time where we would definitely look at gut health and gut flora health and make sure they're making enough serotonin. And would that be done primarily just like with probiotics? Well, so we're going to assess the digestive tract as a whole to see if there's any indicators of dysbiosis, right? Because sugar cravings or low mood on their own are not enough of an indication of dysbiosis or having the wrong bacteria or not enough of the right bacteria in your large intestine. Generally, if you've got dysbiosis, you're also going to have some other gut symptoms. So maybe that's diarrhea, maybe that's bloating and gas, which a lot of people have. Uh, Sometimes it shows up as constipation as well. And so in that case, then, yeah, in correcting, in an attempt to correct the dysbiosis, we will definitely be using probiotics in combination with trying to understand how you ended up with the dysbiosis in the first place, right? So maybe it's because you had a few rounds of antibiotics in your, in your past recent history or because you're not eating in a way that's going to be supportive of your gut flora. Okay. We also, if your gut flora are out of whack, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. They play definitely play a role in metabolizing your hormones. So they play a role for sure in making sure your estrogen gets metabolized properly. So if, um, we can go back to that estrogen discussion in that regard. Um, they also, if they are able to ferment foods too quickly and cause symptoms like bloating and gas. It's also generally an indication that there's a low level of inflammation happening in your intestines because of the improperly digested nutrients. And inflammation is also going to correlate to an elevation of cortisol, which is then going to have a negative impact on your capacity to lose weight. It all makes sense now why taking care of your health plays such a big part in weight loss. (laughs) Yep. It's like, okay, it's all just interconnected. It sure is. (laughs) Uh, Any other things that you want to mention, Jessica, in regards to digestion? Uh, Did we cover it all? I mean, I don't, we could probably talk for hours about digestion, (laughs) but um, I think the biggest thing would be eating at regular intervals and making sure you are like sitting down and giving yourself time to eat. So if you, if you want to do two things to help improve your digestion today, Without me knowing anything about you, those are across the board really good things to add in. Mm-hmm. Be in that rest and digest state. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So we covered a lot there. Digestion, liver, hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, any other things health-wise that you feel maybe people don't know or not aware of when it comes to helping their weight loss? I think the the next thing that we would that would be important to cover for weight loss would be the type of exercise you do and the timing all of all of that stuff. Is that do you okay. mean health wise or is that a separate topic? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So this connects to a few topics, as pretty much everything does. <laughs> so the core need that has to be present uh, in order for weight loss to occur is that you need to be expending more calories than you're burning or than you're consuming rather. So that's that whole like calories in calories out concept. Right. And so in order to facilitate weight loss, we do need to put you at a slight calorie deficit, which means you're burning a little bit more calories than you're consuming. It doesn't have to be very much because uh, our desired healthy weight loss rate, uh, the rate of which we desire you to be losing weight in a healthy, sustainable way, is half a pound to a pound a week. Maybe up to two pounds if you've got a lot of weight to lose and it's at the beginning of your weight loss journey. 
But losing anything more than that or losing anything quicker than that is generally an indication that either you're not doing it in a way that's healthy or it's not sustainable. So given that our goal is half a pound of weight loss a week, we don't need to be in a major calorie deficit. And in fact, being in a major calorie deficit, um, also called dieting, is actually detrimental to weight loss because it is, if you're living in a state of hunger all day, you're living in a low blood sugar state, which is therefore spiking your cortisol and putting you in a stress state and making it really hard for your body to let go of weight. Mm. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it's the primary reason why diets don't work, right? Right. You can definitely definitely push your calorie deficit so low that your, your body loses weight despite being super stressed. That's like the Bernstein diet where you're eating like, you know, 800 calories a day, which is so, so, so low. Um, but that weight loss is absolutely not sustainable, right? The minute you go back to eating an, an even remotely reasonable amount of food, you're going to gain all that weight back. And so that's not our goal. We want sustainable weight loss. Mm -hmm. So um, a mild calorie deficit is generally what I'm aiming for. Now, how big that deficit is, is going to depend on the amount of weight we are desiring to lose. But I think a safe place to start is somewhere between 200 and 400 calories deficit a day. If you only want to lose 10 pounds, then I would err on the low side of that. If you want to lose a little bit more, I would err on the higher side of that. Or if you're wanting to do it in a, in a, in a slow, gentle way, then we are on the low side of that. Um, so that's, that's component one of this discussion. Component two is that let's say you are doing that. You're keeping up a low-level calorie deficit. You've lost, over the past six weeks, you've lost three pounds. And so the, our plan is working. Right? You're losing half a pound a week. Everything is going well. Now you've lost three pounds. And you, therefore, are physically smaller. You have physically fewer cells and, therefore, require less energy to keep yourself alive in everyday moments. So what we are talking about there is the resting energy expenditure or your basal metabolic rate is what that's called. It's the amount of calories you're burning to keep your body alive. As we lose fat or as we lose weight of any type, our basal metabolic rate decreases because we just have fewer cells to keep alive. And so if you started out eating a 200-calorie deficit and that was putting you at, okay, you were eating 1,700 calories a day, and then a few weeks later you've lost a few pounds, you're still eating 1,700 calories a day, but your basal metabolic rate has dropped And so now you're no longer hitting that calorie deficit. That makes sense. (laughs) And so what that translates to is you lose some weight and then you hit what they call, what the media loves to call a weight loss plateau, Mm -hmm. which is where you just, you stop losing weight and you're like, my plan isn't working anymore. This isn't working. Well, it is working. You've just decreased the amount of fuel your body needs. And so now you're just eating exactly as much as you need to keep your weight at a consistent rate. Right. And so if you're going to keep going with that plan, then logic would say, okay, well, now I need to eat even fewer calories to keep up my 200-calorie deficit. But you could do that until you were eating nothing. And so the way to get around that is by building muscle at the same time. Muscle uses a lot of fuel to keep itself alive, and it uses even more fuel when it's active. 
And so the more muscle mass you have, the higher your basal metabolic rate is, which means the higher muscle mass you have, the more calories you're burning at rest while you're watching Netflix, while you're in the bath, while you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so if you have, if if your goal is a 200 calorie deficit, and so you're, by, by doing that, you're eating 1,700 calories a day. And you're doing that with diet, but you're also running parallel uh, a, strength tra- a strength training program where you're building muscle mass. You can lose fat because you're in that calorie deficit while also building muscle. And so you're correlatively increasing your basal metabolic rate, which means you can continue to eat 1,700 calories a day for the next six months and continue to lose weight. Do we need to be weight training every day? How often do we need to be doing this? Yes. You don't need to be doing it every day. Okay. Um, in general, uh, it's really going to depend on the person, right? If you're coming from not ever having done this, then any amount is better than what you were doing before, right? right. So generally, um, the, the recommendation is we want 30 to 45 minutes of exercise of some type a day, but you definitely don't need to be strength training that often. Um, if, you're, if you're just working on standard fitness goals or standard health goals, then I think uh, three times a week is a perfect amount. Okay. And then in, interspersed with, you know, 30 minutes of, you know, a nice walk after dinner or maybe a yoga class or something like that. So you definitely don't need to go high intensity every day. That sounds very doable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay. One thing I really want to talk to you about, Jessica, of course, we can't talk about weight loss without talking about the ketogenic diet. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, first of all, maybe for people who don't know, like the ketogenic diet, it's a high fat, low carb. What is it? Only 20 grams of carbs you're allowed every day? Something like that. Yeah. Very low. Okay. Very low. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts on the ketogenic diet and go. <laughs> so the ketogenic diet um, is very effective in very specific circumstances. Um, the thing to consider is that, so firstly, what's happening in a ketogenic diet is that you are switching all of your cells over from using glucose as fuel to using molecules called ketones, which are produced in our body by, from fat if we don't have glucose. So the reason why you have to be so strict about keeping a low carbohydrate intake on the ketogenic diet is because as soon as your body has enough carbohydrates, it will start using glucose as fuel because it much prefers to use glucose as fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can use ketones in, as fuel in times of very, very low glucose availability. And so that's the, essentially the environment that we are trying to simulate when we are eating a ketogenic diet. The first thing I want to say about the ketogenic diet is that the transition into uh, what they call ketosis, which is where your body has actually shifted over into using ketones as fuel, that transition is hard on your body. You're, je- you're not going to feel that great in that transition. It often takes a few days. Sometimes it takes up to a week. And for that whole transition time, your body's going to feel like it's starving, And you're not going to feel great as a result of that. Um, A common error that people make in trying out a ketogenic diet is that they are not strict enough with their low-carbohydrate intake. And what they end up doing is they keep themselves hovering in this transition state. And so they just feel like garbage all of the time. If you can do it effectively and you can actually reduce your carbohydrate intake to a, a degree that's low enough that you can actually fully switch into ketosis, people generally feel better, more alert, more energized, 
clearer once they have entered into ketosis. But it's also not simple to keep yourself there. You still have to be very, very cognizant of everything that you're eating, and you have to count grams of carbohydrates and really be paying attention to all of that stuff. Um, So the first thing that I generally say about the ketogenic diet is that if you don't absolutely need it because it's, you know, medically indicated, then it's generally too much work for any of the benefits. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot. Most people don't have extra, as much extra energy, and most people are too stressed to be able to handle such a challenge as the ketogenic diet is. We know that it is really, really effective for controlling neurodegenerative or, or other, some sort of, some other forms of neurological disease. For example, um, uncontrollable seizure disorders in kids or in adults respond really well to the ketogenic diet. And in that case, the amount of effort that is required is really worth it, right? Because every time you're having a seizure, you're potentially causing brain damage. And so putting some work in to prevent that is definitely worth it. But for the average person, um, it's a lot of work and for not necessarily a ton, uh, a ton more benefit than you would get by just eating a really healthy diet. Right. Yeah. I've seen that even with some of the clients that I've worked with, people who think that they're eating a ketogenic diet and they give me their meal plan and I see mm-hmm. that they're they're really not eating a ketogenic diet. Yeah. You know, even, like, even the, the classic fatty things that we think of, uh, like cashews, peanuts, like all the nuts and stuff, they have too many carbohydrates to be permitted on the ketogenic diet. Right. And even if you're eating, so, you're eating no carbohydrates, it's often your body doesn't like to switch over into ketosis because it's a challenging state for your body to be in. And so some people still can't even push themselves into ketosis without the use of a supplement, an exogenous ketone supplement, where we're just like loading the body up with ketones to push it into ketosis. Well, it really makes me wonder too, like you're saying how hard it is on the body. And we were talking before so much about how when we do things that are hard on the body, how that increases our cortisol, which, Mm -hmm. you know, messes with our hormones and inevitably messes with our ability to lose weight. So like, do we know long-term what the ketogenic diet being so hard on our body is going to do to us? Right. And that combined with the fact that it's re- it's a very difficult diet to sustain long term. Right? You can't go out for meals with your friends. You can't drink any alcohol. You can't just snack according like casually. You have to plan every single meal. Um, it's tricky. It's, it takes a lot of work. Right. So most people don't do it for longer than like a week or two. Um, and at that point, like how much benefit can you possibly get from one week? of or you know two weeks or even a month of of a diet like that yeah and my thing with it you know being so hard to sustain long term like you said it puts a lot of us in that yo-yo dieting Mm -hmm. you know way of living which i know you've talked about before how hard that is on your health yeah it's super hard on your health it's hard on your nervous system it's hard on your hormones your metabolism it's hard on your mental health right the one of the classic things that we see in the yo-yo diet thing is this without even realizing it you no longer believe that you can do a good job of maintaining a thing Mm -hmm. by constantly going into and going out of this thing and seeing that it's not really working the psychology term is perceived self-efficacy and so this is like your belief in your capacity to accomplish a goal 
And when you constantly go into something, try it for two weeks, realize it's too hard, stop doing it, your perceived self-efficacy goes down over time the more and more you do that. Yeah, you feel like a failure. Right. And you're just, you're setting, and it's not your fault. It's just, you're setting yourself up to not feel like a success by choosing things that are too hard and aren't sustainable and without the right support. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So, so in, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's okay. So I was going to say, just for your listeners, um, if people come, I never recommend the ketogenic diet on my own. If people come to me, say, Hey, I want to try this. What do you think? Um, I'll ask a bunch of questions to see if I feel like they're, if it's going to be safe for them. Um, and generally those questions are, are you struggling with regulating your energy throughout the day? Are you struggling at all with regulating stress, anxiety, or mood stuff throughout the day? And are you struggling with reproductive hormone issues? If you say yes to any of those things, then the ketogenic diet is not for you right now. Because it can mess up those things even further. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, and I often go as far as to say, I think it's probably not an ideal idea for any female of reproductive age because of how strongly it has challenging impacts on the female reproductive hormones. Mm. If you don't fall into those categories and you want to give it a try, then, then go for it. How does it mess with the female reproductive hormones? That's a, I, I, that's a big topic. Um, but in short, our, the female system generally tends to, the, the hormones respond better with a small amount of carbohydrates in our diet. And so even, even a super low-carb diet that isn't a ketogenic diet tends to cause disruption in the estrogen and progesterone levels. And I'm not exactly sure why, to be totally honest. I suspect it, that would be at least in part because we're trying to balance hormones on a low-carb diet and we're living in a relatively stressful society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's something about how stress pulls uh, on our fuel needs and causes an increased fuel demand um, and how readily available carb- carbohydrates are as a fuel source. Um, and if we're just keeping our bodies in a really low carbohydrate state, we're making them have to work a lot harder for our fuel, which is just further adding to the stress challenges. Okay. So do you feel, Jessica, there is a specific diet that you would recommend for people across the board when it comes to weight loss? Do you have a favorite? Um, yeah, I do. My So I don't think there's one diet that or one anything that fits everybody. Mm-hmm. But the one that I see working the most often is a paleo-type diet. I think it's both manageable enough and reasonable enough that people can shift into it and sustain it long term. Um, and it doesn't cause any of the problems that I see in the other more restrictive diets. You can still get lots of carbohydrates from good, healthy sources of vegetables and fruits and other sources of fiber. Um, But in general, if you don't want to go full keto, my recommendations for weight loss diets are high protein, high fat, low carbohydrate. Um, And so generally what I, if they don't, if people don't have an idea of where they want to start, I suggest they try no grains at breakfast and lunch. But proteins, fats, all the vegetables, all the fruits are totally allowed. And then they can have a reasonable amount of grains plus protein, fats, vegetable, fruit at dinner. Interesting. Okay, why no mm-hmm. grains at breakfast and lunch? Um, I tend to see so the grains will spike your insulin more so than anything else because because it's a carbohydrate. Yeah. And a spike in your insulin is going to lower your energy a little bit. So that classic like post-breakfast or even more predominantly post-lunch 
sleepy feeling that people often get or the energy slump Mm -hmm. is at least in part a product of elevated insulin and a slowly dropping cortisol level. And for all the reasons we've already spoken about, high insulin, high cortisol is not going to be advantageous if you're trying to lose weight. The other thing is that generally when people have challenges in their energy, especially in the morning or the early afternoon, their their response is to go and reach for a coffee, Mm -hmm. which is further going to spike their cortisol, which is going to keep you in this cortisol elevated state, which is going to prevent you from being able to lose weight. (laughs) That's another one I tell all my friends. They hate me like coffee is going to increase your cortisol, which is not going to help you lose weight. Yeah. I mean, if you if you say it like in that taunting sing songy <laughs> voice, I could see why they wouldn't like it. <laughs> um, but no, I, I hear you. And so I, I'm not opposed to coffee, but it, give it like it needs to be taken with respect in consideration for the rest of with the rest of the person. And for some people, it really does mean no coffee. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other reason why I suggest lowering grains is because it's such a classic staple. People don't actually even realize how many grains they're eating. And what often happens is if we just ask people to increase their protein intake and they're already eating, you know, like two pieces of whole grain toast, and then we're saying, okay, well, actually now on top of that, you need to eat 20 grams of protein at breakfast, we're actually just really increasing their caloric intake. Mm-hmm. And on, on a weight loss plan, we want to keep them in a mild calorie deficit. And so what I'm hoping to achieve with this no grains at breakfast and lunch is that we get to trade the good healthy fats and proteins, which are really important for managing appetite, for regulating energy throughout the day. And we get to trade them for the carbohydrates. And you're going to also get way more nutrients that your body needs from the proteins and fats. There's not much uh, in in the way of nutrients that you're getting from rice or quinoa or millet or anything like that um you can get all of those nutrients and way more from something like squash or sweet potatoes or uh any of the vegetables even right that makes sense i would have also thought that we would have tried to lower the amount in the evening specifically because our um metabolism decreases in the evening right yeah, it does. It does a little bit. Um, and I and I definitely don't want anybody to go overboard on the carbohydrates in the evening to, you know, like make up for the carbs that they didn't eat earlier in the day or the grains rather. But what I tend to see is that if we give people no grains, if we cut out grains entirely, like a true paleo diet, it can often aggravate uh, the sugar cravings and mm-hmm. stuff at night and ca- carbohydrates because they give you or grains, sorry, because they give you that elevation in insulin can also help you to feel a little bit sleepy in the evening. And many of us need a little bit of help winding down from a busy day, getting ready to go to sleep. And so I think that the trade-off, well, we do like in theory, it's, you know, an unnecessary bunch of calories that you're getting from that grains. Um, as long as you're balancing that with the rest of your meals, I think the benefits that you get from lowering your stress levels, lowering your cravings, lowering your energy so that you can be winding down and getting ready for a good quality night of sleep is worth it. Okay. I have two other really quick questions for you okay. before we go. Um, ready. <laughs> and you're going to laugh because this isn't a quick topic. Um, <laughs> thoughts on intermittent fasting? Yep. Um, so my same rules apply for intermittent fasting as I do for the ketogenic diet. So if you're struggling with regulating energy, anxiety, or mood, or reproductive hormones, that intermittent fasting is not for you for similar reasons. If you are not falling into those categories, then I'm fine for you to try intermittent fasting. There are three different types of intermittent fasting. There's the type where you 
there's there's two main types, I guess. There's the type where you restrict your caloric intake to a certain hour period in the day. So usually that's either somewhere between an 8 and 12-hour 12, 12 what they call feeding window. Mm-hmm. And then that means you're fasting for either 12, uh, 12 or up to 16 hours a day. That's the most common type that people do. The other type is... Um, where for five days of the week you eat a normal amount of food and for two days a week you eat a really low, like a five or 400 calorie day. Um, or the third type is a variation on that where six days a week you eat normal, one 24-hour period you're doing a water fast. The latter two, the days where you're actually having full fasts, I don't really recommend and unless you can always line those up with days where you can rest because generally a fast should be um, done in partnership with a rest day. So if you want to try the intermittent fasting and you don't fit into any of those categories for whom I said this is not for you right now, uh, I would recommend you try the the feeding window reduction, mm-hmm. the caloric intake reduction window. Um, the research, this is the, I think the most important thing to know about intermittent fasting is that the research on it is really, really encouraging and positive in terms of its capacity to support weight loss, its capacity to regulate metabolism, its capacity to reduce things like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high insulin, all of these, you know, all of these things that are really commonly um, issues in our society. However, uh, two things, all of the research that was done on intermittent fasting was done using it in combination with a good healthy diet, usually the paleo diet Mm. or maybe the Mediterranean diet. So you can't expect to get the benefits of paleo or even to be able to sustain, uh, sorry, the the benefits of intermittent fasting or even be able to sustain your health during intermittent fasting if you're just eating your same suboptimal or garbage diet in a smaller window in your day. So that's number one. Um, number two is that almost all of the intermittent fasting research was done on university-aged white males. Right. And we are now learning this lesson for the thousandth time, but white males are not everybody. <laughs> and so we definitely can't generalize this data to females, and we can't even necessarily generalize this data to other nas- nationalities. There's been a couple studies now in the more recent past about intermittent fasting on females. And what we're seeing there is that while we see lots of benefit in reducing the eating window to an eight-hour period in, you know, otherwise young, healthy white males, we see actually detrimental impacts on female health when we re- restrict feeding to that narrow of a window. We see it both inter- uh, negatively impacting mood and also negatively impacting uh, reproductive hormone levels and balance and and menstrual health, probably the two go hand in hand. So generally what I recommend for females, if you don't have any of those previously aforementioned reasons that would make you avoid intermittent fasting in general, is to keep a maximum of a 10-hour small window. So eat eat all of your food between 10 and 12 hours, Mm -hmm. uh, but don't go less than 10 hours. Okay. So don't don't be fasting for more than 14 hours a day is another way to say that. Okay. Okay, last question. Okay. This is a listener question. Why, Great. when it comes to weight loss, does it change with age? Losing 10 pounds at 30, 40, and 50 are all so different. Why is yeah. that? Yeah, there's a, that's a great question. Um, and obviously a frustrating one for 
a lot of people. So there's a, there's a number of reasons. Um, number one, we know that as, uh, as we age, our metabolism goes down. So the rate at which we are burning fuel at rest decreases slowly over time. Now, the thing that I always want people to think about when, whenever you hear anything getting worse with age is you want to consider, is that a normal process of healthy aging or is that an accumulation of suboptimal or unhealthy diet and lifestyle patterns over time? Mm. And in this case, the challenge with weight loss as you age, I think, is a combination of both. So as we age, our metabolic rate decreases and our ability to recover and heal and repair is slightly reduced. Uh, But we can do a lot to mitigate that by making sure we're not also becoming more sedentary and more stressed and less well-rested and less good at taking care of ourselves as we age, which is a common thing, Mm -hmm. especially in women. Mm -hmm. Um, As we talked about a few minutes ago, one of the biggest, uh, the biggest driver for maintaining your metabolic rate is your muscle mass. And it's very, very, very common for people to become more and more sedentary as they age. And therefore they're losing muscle mass as they age which is for sure going to mean their basal metabolic rate is going down. And even if you're eating the same amount as you did last year or five years ago and, and before you were maintaining your weight, now you're going to be gaining weight. That makes uh, sense. And that, yeah. And that doesn't take, that's not even touching the discussion of like how often as we age, we get more stressed and, or our hormones get more disrupted or we have more, you know, inflammation or more things to heal in our body, which are all going to be pulling, um, pulling our attention and rising our cortisol levels. Yeah, pretty much everything we've talked about this last hour. Yeah, so I mean, I think the short answer and, and not to get over, not, not, not to be discouraging because I don't think it's like a, just a, you don't have to just accept that you're going to gain weight or have impossibilities uh, losing weight at an older age, but it just means you have to prioritize, prioritize even more healthy, adequate sleep and good quality exercise, including a strength building program. And then you should be able to, hit your goals for the most part okay amazing so much good information thank you so much thank you so much for uh joining us and just sharing your wealth of knowledge jessica you are very welcome thank you for having me all right that does it for our conversation with dr jessica eastman i hope you guys enjoyed that one and got some new insights i don't know about you but i feel like the weight loss the mainstream i mean are really only talking about working out calories in calories out and there are just so many other pieces to it as you just heard we really need to look at our health as a whole for many different reasons but yeah when it comes to weight loss as well so if you're loving on dr jessica eastman maybe you want to work with her i'll let you know she does see clients in person in vancouver british columbia that's where her practice is Um, but she also works with people in british columbia online so that's an option as well you can find her on instagram at dr jessica eastman and I will put that in the show notes. All right, friends, have a fantastic day and we'll see you next week.